Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the greatest podcast in American history, a.k.a. Dang Dude, What the Heck Happened to America. My name is Dylan Shear. I am your host for this podcast. And today we are doing our second of two episodes on World War II. Once again, this podcast does cover American history from sort of the end of the Civil War up through as close to the present day as we can get. Uh, so in the first episode on World War II, we talked about sort of the world the the war abroad, right? Looking at its beginnings, uh, some of the battles, how it was fought uh, in the Pacific, in Europe, and now we'll be looking sort of how people in the U.S. dealt with the war, right? So sort of separating that way, just so we don't get one super long podcast. And just as a reminder, this is not a super in-depth type look at uh, World War II. We're not going over battles, individual days, but we are going to be doing some of the broad strokes here. So today's episode is going to cover four major things. One, sort of what American culture was like uh, during World War II, uh, so culture and life. And then we'll look at the double V campaign, sort of a very important part of World War II in the United States. We'll look at the horrible... Um, Japanese internment uh, plan in the United States, the camps set up here. And then we'll also look at some uh, of what labor is, what organized labor is doing during World War II. So three major questions for this podcast. One, how did World War II change work in the United States? That doesn't seem like a, a question people would normally ask, but World War II very much did change how people throughout the U.S. Uh, worked and labored during the war and then after as well. We'll ask the question, was a double V campaign a effective, right? Did it achieve its goals? And then finally, how did World War II change what it meant to be American? Hinted at this along the way, right? But ideas of Americanness are changing. People are adding, people are subtracting from what it can mean to be an American, right? That idea is always changing and World War II very much has a definite change on that. Before we get into sort of the bulk of this podcast, though, I'd like to do a little character study. Today's uh, might be actually more familiar to all the nerds out there, all my science fiction fans. Uh, we'll be talking about George Takai, the actor best known for his portrayal of Sulu on Star Trek. Uh, so if you're a big, you know, original OG Star Trek fan, you're more than aware of George Takai. Uh, Takai was born in 1937 in Los Angeles in LA. In 1942, so when he was about uh, four or five years old, he and his family were forced into an internment camp during World War II as a result of FDR's uh, internment camp policies. Um, the first camp they were at was a former horse stable converted into this war camp. Uh, his family was, at, during the war, also sent to Arkansas and then back to California. As a result of this internment process, his family's bank accounts were taken, as was their home and the business that his parents ran, right? So they lost just all their money and then means of living after the war. To make matters worth, worse, his aunt and infant cousin were both killed when the atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima, right? So he had family over there as well. Just an awful, awful experience, and he's only recently sort of talked about this. Uh, at length, but it was just a horrible, horrible experience for him. Managed to sort of overcome that in a lot of ways, become this sort of famous movie actor, but the fact that he had to even overcome that uh, is just... You know, one of the, the most awful things to happen in American history. And George Takai was just one of the 112,000, about the, that's not a precise number, but it's close, people of Japanese descent uh, living in the US who were put into internment camps during the war. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later, right? But just one of those horrible, horrible periods of American history. The war at home. 
compared to the rest of the world, just like sort of in World War One, uh, the U.S. escaped much of the the violence of the war. Right, the war was not really fought on U.S. soil outside of Pearl Harbor, and there was no major you know battles on the continental U.S. Uh, despite that, there was still much trauma and violence caused by World War Two. Right, not least of all the internment camps. Despite that trauma and violence, though, that horrible horrible time for many people, others in the U.S. saw World War Two as a sort of energizing event for the U.S., right? Bringing the U.S. finally into the forefront of the world. If, if World War I hadn't been enough to do that, you know, world, the people saw World War II as a chance for the U.S. finally to become a superpower. Uh, and World War II did transform the U.S., you know, economically, socially, militarily, politically, right? Those transformations really helped some people and then really hurt lots of others as well, as transformations often do, right? It's never sort of a total good, a total bad for everybody in the U.S. So let's look at the economy first in the U.S., the war economy. So as I mentioned in the episode on the Great Depression, right, it's, it wasn't the New Deal that actually brought the U.S. out of the Great Depression. It was World War II and this war spending, this wartime economy that finally sort of brought the U.S. out of the Great Depression. Uh, this mobilization of the wartime economy, uh, sort of the need and the calls for increased production of war material, right? We were selling, we were selling goods to Britain and to the, to the allies over in Europe. Uh, and the call for that provided jobs for many Americans, massively, massively increased government spending, even over new deal levels, far and above new deal levels. It also provided, uh, this new spending provided massive profits for industrialists who were own, who owned the factories, right? Um, and it sort of changed the relationship between the economy and the military. Prior to World War II, at the end of like a war, uh, you would see massive sort of decrease in the number of troops, massive decrease in the, in the amount of military spending. But you don't see that after World War II, right? You, there, there's a decrease, but sort of the levels remain much, much higher, and the the people in the standing army remain much higher um, after World War II, and you see a much a further, further increase, you know, increasing of ties, strengthening of ties between the U.S. economy and the military. So talking about manufacturing here, the federal government sort of managed a significant amount of the co- economy, more than it ever managed before during World War II, uh, sort of just far, far greater control over all aspects of the economy than had seen before. One of the groups involved in this overseeing of the economy was the War Production Board, uh, which was started by FDR. The War Production Board gave contracts to companies like Goodyear to Chrysler and others to switch from consumer goods to military goods, right? So Goodyear, you know, instead of making just tires for cars, started making, you know, other products that in, involve the rubber, right? So they could make tires for military vehicles, but then also if uniforms needed rubber or if, you know, they needed rubber gaskets in a tank or something, Goodyear started making those uh, on behalf of the government, right? Taking government contracts. Same thing for Chrysler. Uh, you know, instead of making the Chrysler cars, they could maybe repurpose engines, redesign engines to put them into to military vehicles, all that sort of things. And it wasn't just big manufacturing companies, right? You know, companies that made like shirt waists or whatever, t-shirts could switch to uh, producing military goods, right? Military uniforms, all that sorts of stuff. So the switch went all across sort of the U.S. economy, right? That switch, which didn't happen in World War I, uh, happened in World War II from this fully moving away from consumer goods to a military economy. Uh, on top of that, in 1943, FDR created the Office of War Mobilization, the OWM, 
Uh, the OWM distributed key military resources like rubber and steel to companies with military contracts. So instead of Goodyear having to find places to get this rubber for its contracts, right, the government was like, okay, we'll set up this office that will do that for you, making so they just have to focus on producing this stuff. Um, the head of the Office of War Mobilization actually was a former Supreme Court justice, James F. Burns, who actually quit his job on the Supreme Court to lead up the OWM, which today that would seem almost like ridiculous to anybody. Uh, you know, Supreme Court justices don't just quit, right? They either die on the bench or they retire and don't go into other work. But this guy, Justice James F. Burns, was very much like, this is something I have I have to do. He'd only been on the Supreme Court for a, uh, just over a year. Uh, he's also a senator of South Carolina, representative and governor of South Carolina at one point, right? So this sort of big guy making the sort of switch, taking somewhat of a downgrade, actually, in a job, uh, saying, you know, he needed to support his country. Uh, in addition to distributing those resources, the OWM also banned production of non-essential materials. Right. So even companies that might not have wanted to switch uh, would have a much, much harder time actually producing goods to sell on open markets. World War II also saw a massive increase in the labor force in the U.S., right, as sort of. The two things, one, that there was just a call for a lot more jobs, but then also, right, the jobs that had been lost during the Great Depression were sort of regained. Uh, so it's, you know, coming back from the Depression and then also adding more jobs on top of that. So you get this huge, huge, huge increase. You also see a lot of Americans joining the armed forces. 12 million uh, Americans joined the armed forces. And that's not just uh, people volunteering, also being drafted. But companies also were sort of like hiring uh, men and women at tremendous rates in order to fulfill these government contracts, right? They needed people to actually make the stuff to fulfill these contracts. So you see men and women joining the workforce at its huge, huge, huge rates. Uh, to manage all these new workers, right? Because they were technically, you know, working for the federal government under these federal contracts. FDR created the National War Labor Board, the NWLB, to manage all these new workers. And this NWLB actually did a lot of sort of good things for labor at the time, right? They set a minimum wage, one of the first times you see a minimum wage. Uh, and they required certain working conditions and hours, right? So they're saying if these people are working uh, in these fields, they have have to have, you know, they can't be working 80 hours a week. Uh, they can't be working in these awful, you know, horrible conditions. Uh, they actually have to have the good standards of living and make a certain amount of money, right? Which was very, very good for labor. In addition to that, setting those standards, FDR and the NWLB also worked with labor leaders, right? So leaders of groups like the AFL and the CIO to try to end strikes, saying, you know, strikes here would stop production. They wouldn't allow us to actually make all the stuff we need. Uh, you have to not do these strikes and in return, we'll give you all these things like, you know, working hours and, and working conditions and stuff. There were still a few strikes. Uh, the leader of the CIO, John L. Lewis in particular, didn't really want to agree to this stuff, saying it would, you know, harm his workers even further, uh, especially if the war was over, right? It would reduce their ability to strike. But for the most part, union workers stayed on the job, accepting these minimum wages and, and better working conditions in response for not striking. Uh, wages were raised, right? And even as a result of this, union membership increased by 
to 15 million people in the United States by 1945, right? So these higher and higher rates, some of the highest rates the U.S. has ever seen of, of union involvement came during World War II. All this stuff, though, all these contracts had to be paid for, right? The U.S. couldn't just be like, okay, uh, Goodyear, you're making me uh, 16 million tires or whatever. I keep using Goodyear as an example, but it's on top of mind. Uh, and you're, we're not going to pay for them, right? No, they had to pay for all these tires, had to pay for all these goods, pay for this minimum wage. And so World War II became became a very, very expensive war. And this is true not just for the U.S., but for every country in the world, but we're looking at the U.S. here. Uh, in total, uh, the U.S. spent about $321 billion on World War II. That's B, a billion with a B. That is a massive, massive amount of money, even not adjusted for inflation. Uh, but when adjusted for inflation, uh, much, much, much higher. Uh, so to pay for this, FDR did a couple of things. One, he raised taxes, especially on the wealthy, on big businesses, and on inheritances, inheritances, right? Uh, so you know, if you instead of being able to pass down every single penny, uh, the government took a good large chunk of that. Uh, businesses also saw their their tax rates increase, uh, and the wealthy saw their rates increase as well. Uh, but these taxes only paid for about forty five percent of the war, so a little bit under half. Um, so to raise that extra money, uh, the U.S. sold war bonds, which sort of raised the national debt, right, but allowed for a lot of money to be raised up front, and the other stuff could be worried about later. Uh, the U.S. government also started rationing projects uh, to ration sort of goods, non-essential goods. Um, they encouraged people to grow their own food in their backyards. They called them victory gardens in the, you know, propaganda terms of the times. Uh, but like, you know, you could have sugar rations. Uh, you have, you know, tobacco rations, that sort of stuff, unless you're able to grow your own. Uh, you can still find these ration cards around. You have to take them down to, you know, the local supplier, and they would give you the, the amount that you were able to get. Yeah. Uh, there's more other more strict controls uh, brought on by groups like the Office of Price Administration, right? Uh, and all this was sort of backed up by a big propaganda campaign, uh, which we'll talk a little bit about here. Um, you can see, you know, grow vitamins. Uh, these signs for Victory Gardens, right, saying grow vitamins at your kitchen door, right? You get two pounds of sugar per month. You know, old grandmas turning down their heat to save oil, saying I'm in this fight too, right? So all these sort of signs getting people to try to, to buy into these to these rations, right? The U.S. had never really seen something like this before where stuff was being rationed in order to fight a war. So you had to get sort of buy-in from the public. Otherwise, it wouldn't have worked, especially coming on the backs of the Great Depression, right? Right, where people had literally been starving, these bread riots, and now you're asking them once again to cut back. That's a hard sell, but it did it did seem to work. Uh, so there are some new opportunities as well, right? Especially for uh, black people in the United States during this time. Part of this it came from sort of two things: uh, much uh, U.S. propaganda at the time claimed that the U.S. was fighting in World War II to protect freedom and to end racism of Germany. Right? They would talk about you know how. Germany was being racist towards uh, to Jewish people, to you know Roma, to black people everywhere. That was a big part of the propaganda, right? That the U.S. was fighting to end this fascism, fighting to end this racism of Germany. Uh, but that didn't always translate to ra less racism in the United States, right? Uh, the U.S. was still incredibly racist. Uh, their segregation 
all across the South and, you know, unofficial segregation in the North. There had just been these massive amounts of race riots, World War II, the Great Depression, sort of devastated black communities across the United States. And uh, as a result, there was, there were some increased opportunities uh, for advancement that like, you know, previous racism and discrimination would have normally kept the black people from receiving, right? More jobs available, uh, especially in the army. Uh, but for others, that sort of rampant discrimination and racism continued to infect sort of every moment of their lives, right? This wasn't an immediate end. Women uh, saw some opportunities, especially white women. Uh, by 1945, uh, the number of women in general employed outside the house had increased to 50%. Uh, many of them were working in jobs not traditionally considered, quote-unquote, women's work, right? They're actually working in factories, uh, not just as secretaries or teachers. Uh, to promote the idea of women, right? These companies needed women to fill the jobs. There are a lot of men in the army. They needed people to do this work. The federal government began the Rosie the Riveter campaign, the sort of famous image of the time. Uh, many women also volunteered to serve in military units, working as nurses uh, and support staff. Despite these federal campaigns supporting women entering war industries, they still faced massive amounts of discrimination in the workplace, often paid much lower wages than men who were the same job as them. You also get many black people uh, organizing to end racial bias and hiring practices. Uh, and this is where you see the start of what's called the double V campaign, which we'll talk about here for a bit. Uh, a. Philip Randolph, especially, who was the head of the Brotherhood of the Sleeping Car Porters, a, a union of sleeping car porters. The, those are the guys who sort of do all the work on these sleeping cars, you know, bring, make beds, bring people's luggage, all that sort of stuff. Uh, and he helped organize a march on Washington, A. Philip Randolph. This march on Washington was to, pref uh, to pressure the government to develop and enforce anti-discrimination hiring practices in both in the defense industry and to end segregation in the military, right? Uh, at this point in time, black people could serve in the military, but then segregated units and, you know, a. Philip Randolph is saying that's ridiculous, right? And other people in, in his organization saying that's so stupid. Uh, what are you doing? And so they, they did this plan, this march on Washington, right? Following the path of, you know, Coxie's army, the bonus army, all these people sort of marching on Washington to, to make their claims known. Uh, FDR, for his part, he feared that this march on Washington would start a race war, right? Uh, that this sort of would be a, a massive uprising uh, of black people in the United States. Uh, and so in response to this organization of Randolph, he issued Executive Order 8802, uh, one of his many executive orders. Uh, this established what's known as the Fair Employment Practices Committee, uh, which required federal contracts to make jobs available without regard to race, creed, color, or national origin. Sort of a big, big deal, right? Formalizing this, this policy that, that federal hiring has to be race blind. Uh, this executive order did not end uh, racist hiring practices, right? Obviously, there are still many, many times when uh, people were turned down for a job because of, of their race, color, or national origin, or even creed, uh, but it did have some effect. We did see the hiring of more black men and women after after this executive order was passed. Uh, the number of, of black people working in war industries increased from 3 to 9%. Right. So a pretty big increase, even if still not sort of fully uh, where it should be. 
Uh, you also see, as a result of this, the number of black people in unions also increased from 1 million in 1945. Oh, sorry, increased to 1 million by 1945. Uh, and the average wage of those people quadrupled, right? So that had a, a huge effect for those people. The double V campaign uh, continued, however. Uh, formal segregation continued in the military. Uh, that that executive order, 8802, did not end formal segregation in the military. So double V campaign was still fighting against that. Um, despite this segregation, about one million uh, African Americans served in the military during World War II. Uh, they served in black units commanded by white officers, uh, just like had been the case in World War One. Um, the Tuskegee Airmen, um, one of the most famous of these black units, 180 Flying Crosses, this sort of uh, massive, massive, uh, like the biggest award you can get, basically. Uh, many of these soldiers sort of wondered why they were fighting to end discrimination abroad when they faced sort of discrimination at home, right? Uh, and as a result of this, uh, sort of using that formulation, a newspaper, the Pittsburgh Courier, launched a propaganda campaign uh, with this in mind called the Double V Campaign. Uh, you know, victory for fascism abroad, that's the first V, and the second V is victory against racism at home. So that was the formal start of the Double V Campaign. Uh, some people, you know, say that this A. Philip Randolph March on Washington is the another sort of informal beginning of it, but the Pittsburgh Courier was sort of the first to use that. Uh, that phrasing, right? The double victory, uh, victory against fascism abroad and victory against racism at home. Uh, the fight against racism at home was not an easy one. Racial violence racked the U.S. in 1943 when sort of race riots once again raged across the country. Uh, one of the biggest ones in, in Detroit on June 20th and 22nd. Uh, white people traveled long distances across the city to join the first stage of this riot near uh, the bridge at Belle Isle Park. Um, and, you know, white people were traveling in armed groups explicitly to attack black neighborhoods and, and the black neighborhood in Paradise Valley. Um, black participants were often older, established city residents uh, who in many cases sort of lived in the city for more than a decade, who were looting and destroying white-owned property in their neighborhood. Uh, so sort of this very much just this huge uh, amount of violence that, that racked uh, Detroit uh, in 1943. Uh, there was over 250 riots in 50 cities across the United States. And sort of many future leaders of the civil rights movement uh, would be radicalized uh, during these riots, but then also by their service in World War II. Thurgood Marshall, for example, uh, the future Supreme Court justice, was sort of radicalized during this time, especially with the Tuskegee Airmen, when he defended uh, 100 Tuskegee Airmen while sort of while they were doing their training in Indiana. Uh, some of the, the officers on the Tuskegee Fighter Group were arrested and charged with mutiny after entering the all-white officers club, right? Um, Thurgood Marshall, who represented them, though very much a young lawyer, represented the 100 black officers who had landed in jail as a result of this confrontation. Um, and the men were soon released, although one was later convicted of violent, cond uh, of violent conduct and fined. So it's sort of a, a big, big moment, right, for sort of this future civil rights uh, leader and hero Thurgood Marshall was with uh, these, you know, the Tuskegee Airmen during World War II. Uh, Booker T. Washington would found Tuskegee University uh where a lot of these people uh, were trained, right? Uh, in addition to 1,000 pilots, Tuskegee program trained nearly 14,000 navigators, bombardiers, instructors, aircraft, and engine 
engine mechanics, control tower operators, and other maintenance and support staff. Benjamin O. Davis Jr. would be go on to become the first black general in the Air Force. Coming out of the Tuskegee Airmen, Daniel Chappie James Jr. Uh, would become the nation's first black four-star general in 1975. Right, the Siggy Airmen has sort of long been this group of interest uh, coming out of World War II, Red Tails. You get this movie about that as well. Uh, you also see in the U.S. Um, the introduction of the Bracero program. Uh, this came only a few years after sort of forcibly be re- forcibly removing many uh, Mexican-Americans from the Southwest during the Great Depression, right? We talked about that a couple of weeks ago on the podcast where, you know, thousands of Mexicans and Mexican-Americans, oftentimes citizens born and raised in the United States, were forcibly and illegally deported to the U.S., to, the, to, to Mexico, Um but as a result of World War II, the U.S. once again needed workers, so they started what was called the Bracero Program to bring several hundred thousand Mexican laborers across uh, the border to work in the U.S., in farms in the American Southwest, and then also in shipyards in California and ports, right? So the sort of reversal of this horrible policy uh, years ago, now they're like, oh, we actually need you back in the U.S. Uh, but instead of, you know, being full citizens, we're going to pay you much less than the minimum wage. We're having to do this awful, awful, dangerous, horrible work, and we're just, you're not going to be citizens at all. You're not going to get, uh, you know, the rights of everybody else to this program. But despite sort of this horrible treatment, you still see 300,000 and Mexican-Americans serving in the armed forces during this time uh, as well. You still get this awful sort of anti, anti-Latin anti racism throughout the United States. Uh, it's not just sort of race riots between uh, black people and white people. There's also racist attacks against Latin men in Los Angeles in 1943, known as the Zoot Suit Riots. Uh, the police failed to do anything about them and in many places encouraged the violence against these young men. Uh, and this is sort of part of these this broader series of nationwide race riots uh, going on at the time. Just sort of a horrible, horrible period in the U.S. On top of that, you also get Japanese internment, uh, which we sort of mentioned a little bit. But Japanese Americans faced horrible treatment during World War II. After the bombing of Pearl Harbor, FDR issued Executive Order 9066, uh, ordering the internment of quote-unquote possible spies. Uh, This was just an awful, incredibly horrible move, just a giant stain on the history of the United States. Some Italian and German people were arrested and kept on military bases in Montana, but internment camps were reserved solely for Japanese Americans. Uh, so it was just an, an incredibly horrible policy, first of all, but then also incredibly racist, right, uh, that this would happen. Many, if not most, of the people interned were American citizens, had lived in the United States for decades, considered themselves fully American, right? But that didn't matter. Uh, as a result of this internment policy, uh, they were forced to leave their property and lives behind, Right, uh, their their bank accounts were seized. Their businesses were shut down. Oftentimes, people just moved into their houses. This is sort of blatantly unconstitutional. Right, everyone has a right to a speedy trial by their peers, uh, but not in this case. Uh, the Supreme Court upheld the the executive order in the case Korematsu versus United States. Right, just one of these cases that show that the Supreme Court isn't really this, you know judicial body that is somehow fully embodied in the constitution and knows exactly what is right. Is it a political body just as any other part of the U S government is 
Um, after the war, many of the people held prisoner in these camps came back to, to try to, you know, rebuild their lives only to discover that people had moved into their houses. Uh, banks had taken their bank accounts and they had no legal recourse to get any of these back. Right. Uh, the, the government would not support any of their claims in 1988. Uh, so 40 some years after the war, the government finally officially apologized for this. Uh, granted each survivor $20,000 in reparations, hardly uh, enough to sort of fix any of the problems caused by this uh, and just sort of a horrible, horrible part of American history, right? Uh, one of the worst things FDR ever did. Uh, you also see some other laws passed during World War II that sort of very much change, are very sort of influential on the world t- today. Uh, one of those laws, uh, one of some of the most consequential laws passed during World War II, uh, was the GI Bill, which created sort of a huge number of opportunities for returning, returning soldiers and sort of set up one of the ways the economy would look like after the war was over. Uh, the GI Bill promised veterans unemployment benefits, free college, low-interest housing loans, and medical care. Uh, and I remember 12 million people were joining uh, the U.S. Army, right? There was a huge, huge amount of people who are going to be taking advantage of this GI Bill. More than 2 million ex-servicemen entered college after the war, creating the beginnings of a new middle class. You see a lot of people, you know, taking classes in English, taking classes in in creative arts, right? A lot of uh, Chicago's uh, advertising um, sort of economy came out of World War II vets, a lot of them black World War II vets, uh, taking these art classes in college for free and then using those skills to become, you know, marketers or advertisers, right? So this is very, very beneficial to a lot of people using this free college uh, to give themselves sort of middle-class careers. Many also used um, their the low-interest housing loans to start buying housing, creating a sort of a post-war construction boom, right? Uh, so, you know, continuing uh, the number of jobs that were available uh, even after the war was over and they were switching back to a more consumer economy. Um, black and Latina uh, Latin servicemen were not always able to fully access their benefits uh, as discrimination in loan access and college administrations can admissions continued around the U.S. Uh, but some of them were able to access them and it's very, very sort of beneficial to them and really changed the way um, sort of the U.S. looked after the war. Uh, so some demographic shifts were also caused by World War II. Uh, a number of dramatic shifts in the U.S. population. About 8 million people moved west of the Mississippi uh, to gain defense industry jobs. There's a huge movement uh, from the north and the south out west. California alone gained 2 million people. That's on top of, you know, the quote-unquote Okies that moved there during the Dust Bowl. So you see California's population massively increased during this time. That's where it gets all its population that it has today is from, you know, the Great Depression, World War II era. You also see a lot more industrial investment in the South, largely uh, because union presence weren't big there. But you also see a lot more industry jobs in the South. The South lost about 2 million people during the war moving, uh, but also gained about 1 million people looking for new jobs. The Midwest also saw its black population dramatically increase, often leading to to white hostility and anti-black violence. Uh, some notes on wartime leisure as well. Uh, World War II changed the way people, you know, enjoyed their free time in the U.S. Uh, as a result of uh, many sort of 
the men who would have played sports uh, going into the army or working war jobs. Women's sports leagues proliferated uh, through this time. You see a league of their own uh, takes place during World War II. You also see jazz and particularly big band band swing become hugely, hugely popular, especially among white audiences. You know, the little bugle boy of Company B and all that stuff. Um, many people were sort of kept up to date on the war via newsreels, right? Uh, these little clips uh, of, of movies that were shown before before uh, actual movies, right? So the, for the first time, a lot of people are actually seeing clips of what the war was like. These clips were heavily, heavily edited, obviously. Um, and, you know, for the most part, these movie makers weren't embedded into military units like they would be in Vietnam. Uh, but you see this sort of massive uh, distribution of of films of war during this time, one of the first times that's happened. Okay, some conclusions here, uh, sort of, you know, talking about this, the culture and the war, right? We talked about how the war ended uh, last last week in the podcast. Today was mostly just about culture. Uh, so the World War II really helped remake the United States. Uh, you see huge population shift across the U.S. You also see sort of the beginnings uh, of this move toward legalized racial equality in some ways with the double V campaign, Randolph's March on Washington. But you also see sort of re- huge, massive race riots, horrible treatment of Japanese Americans, of Mexican Americans during this time. Um, and so while those seeds of maybe legal equality might have begun to be planted, they certainly had not been sprouted yet at all, and racism still heavily prevalent throughout the U.S. Uh, emerging from the war, and we'll talk about this in next week's podcast, uh, the U.S. would em- emerge again as sort of the biggest industrial producer in the world, relatively unscathed from the violence of the war. Uh, so next week, we'll talk about the Cold War uh, and the beginnings of sort of the, the last third uh, of the series on American history. All right. Um, thank you and have a great rest of your day.